I've been noticing a lot of people who are against abortion celebrating the retirement of Justice Anthony Kennedy from the U.S. Supreme Court and a nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the court by Donald Trump. Reason being, of course, that a more conservative court would make it more likely that Roe v. Wade, the 1973 ruling that essentially legalized abortion nationwide, could be overturned as precedent, allowing states to restrict or even outright ban abortion. I've mentioned to my pro-life friends and associates that abortion rates have decreased pretty consistently in the past 20 years or so, and that there are a number of ways to further decrease the abortion rate that don't involve a ban. I discussed these points further in my earlier episodes that specifically address abortion back in episodes 21 and 22 if you'd like to check those out. But in any case, even though there are ways that abortion rates can be brought down without a ban, many of my pro-life friends insist on a ban. The most compelling reason is something I've heard from a few people, and this is from both secular and religious people who are pro-life. The reason is that if it's wrong to take a life, whether it's morally wrong or ethically wrong, our laws should reflect those values. The government should not be in the business of sanctioning the killing of a group of people, including the unborn. Now, while I don't think that government allowing a practice is the same as sanctioning it, I can appreciate the argument. I can see how it makes sense on a philosophical level, especially if you believe that the unborn is a life as I happen to believe. In that case, logically, it's difficult to argue against this point. But here's the one major issue I have with this argument. If abortion is made illegal, will it actually end abortion? You see, the reason why I'm more a social scientist than a philosopher is that we can think through the idea of a government that says abortion is wrong. But none of that really matters if a government saying abortion is wrong doesn't actually do what we want it to do. We need to ask ourselves here, is being pro-life more about the symbolism of saving the unborn or about actually saving the unborn? And no, both is not an option. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. nomination of Kavanaugh to the U.S. Supreme Court and his likely confirmation by a spineless, complicit Senate, we should talk about what will happen if Roe and other rulings that have allowed abortion to be legal in this country are ignored by the Roberts Court in favor of overturning judicial precedent. What if Roe does get overturned? Will it end abortion? Will the babies be saved? So here's what's going to happen. Mississippi, Louisiana, North Dakota, and South Dakota all have abortion trigger laws that will automatically ban abortion in these states if Roe is overturned. But what about the other states? In the immediate future, it depends. Surely, many red states will rush to pass laws to further restrict or outright ban abortion in their states. But abortion may continue to be legal in other states, So we'll end up with a patchwork system of access to safe and legal abortion. And it's really not as simple as just hop over the state line to get your abortion or take a chance and get one under the table. In some cases, this may not be feasible. 
The difference between accessing treatment for an ectopic pregnancy or some other major condition where continuing a pregnancy will take your life, and the alternative, dying and never seeing your family again, may depend on if you happen to live in Brooklyn, New York, or Brooklyn, Ohio. It's similar to how we've handled issues such as marijuana legalization, same-sex marriage, or interracial marriage in the past. But this has the potential of even more deadly consequences. Yes, there are pros to states having different laws due to the vastness of the U.S. and the varied cultural standards in each state. But the problem with state sovereignty and states' rights is that for the big issues that affect people's quality of life, a state-by-state patchwork of laws is extremely messy and it begs for a national solution. Let's come back to that. Right now, I want to take a detour to point out a few other developments that I think we need to include in this conversation. This might sound like a tangent, but stay with me here. I'll tie it all together in just a bit. So the House recently passed a bill that will allow private adoption agencies accepting federal funds to deny services to families if it conflicts with their religious beliefs or moral convictions. In addition, state and local governments that levy their own penalties for denial of service to certain families, like non-discrimination laws, can have 15% of their federal funding withheld. This law is likely to affect LGBT couples and individuals most as many religious adoption agencies oppose placing children with LGBT people and same-sex couples. It may also affect interfaith couples, single parents, people who have previously been divorced, among others. Because this affects the placement of children in state care rather than private adoptions, children who are harder to place and of most need of homes will be affected by the further shrinking pool of people considered eligible by agencies to adopt children. Another development, 20 states' attorneys general are currently suing the federal government to repeal the Affordable Care Act, which, while not perfect, has allowed millions of people to obtain insurance who were otherwise either priced out of the health insurance market or were denied coverage due to pre-existing conditions from asthma to cancer. And the U.S. Justice Department is in support of the part of the lawsuit asking for the requirement that insurers cover people on the individual insurance market with pre-existing conditions be done away with. If this lawsuit is successful, this means that people with pre-existing conditions, if they work for a small employer, are self-employed, are between jobs, or decided to retire before they hit the age where they'd be eligible for Medicare, are SOL. And if they get sick, they could be stuck with huge medical bills or could be denied for needed medical procedures because of an inability to pay. And that can lead to a lower quality of life, an inability to contribute to society, and even death. Speaking of employment, over the past few decades, it's been increasingly more difficult to compete in the workforce and obtain a job that will keep you off the welfare rolls without a college degree. Even jobs that pay low wages are requiring college degrees. Yet the cost of obtaining a degree has skyrocketed. No longer can you just work through school and pay your tuition at the same time. If you're not well off and you earn a college degree, you will likely carry some student loan debt. And generally, you can't discharge that in bankruptcy. So you have to pay it back for a certain period of time or face stiff penalties that can include ruined credit, wage garnishment, and seizure of government benefits such as Social Security. 
So if you have student loans, you're stuck with them. Well, the Department of Education under Education Secretary Betsy DeVos came out with a statement siding with student loan companies against states instituting state-level consumer protections aimed at protecting student loan borrowers against unscrupulous loan collection practices. In related news, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau filed a lawsuit last year against Navient, the largest student loan servicer, accusing Navient of intentionally providing borrowers with bad information and committing other shady practices that resulted in borrowers overpaying on their student loans. This suit is still ongoing. Then just last week, the CFPB filed a letter to the judge overseeing the case stating that the Department of Education is obstructing access to Navient's records. Let's take a hard right from school to prison. Private prisons are a $5 billion industry, and they house 8% of state prisoners and 15% of federal prisoners. Government agencies may choose private prisons to save money, as the idea is that the private sector can provide services more efficiently than the government can, and using private prisons can relieve overcrowding at government-run prisons. But it does mean that the profit motive is introduced into the justice system and can influence convictions and sentencing. In addition, private prisons often donate untold amounts of money to political parties and candidates, so it's safe to say the concerns about partiality in the justice system are valid. Several states do not have private prisons, but others do, including here in Ohio. These prisons are particularly popular down south and out west. The Obama administration had been working to phase out private prisons on a federal level, but the Trump administration, led by Attorney General Jeff Sessions, has reversed course. And most of the immigrants being detained due to ICE raids are being held at private prisons. That's probably not a coincidence. So let's look at the big picture here. All these are changes conservative politicians are laying at our feet. People wonder why millennials aren't out here buying homes and making other big-ticket purchases, but forget that more and more of us are buried in mounds of student loan debt with no relief in sight just so we don't have to be on public assistance. And this debt limits how much we can contribute to the economy. Americans of all generations are poised to be buried in medical premiums if we can afford them at all. And if we can't afford necessary medications and procedures, it'll lead to reduced contribution to the economy because we'll all be too sick or disabled to work and lead to early death. Most student loan and medical bills also means that fewer of us will be able to afford to have children or adopt them. These are the types of situations that can increase demand for abortion. Now let's say that Congress decides at some point after Roe is overturned that letting the states handle it won't work and they want to invoke a national solution. They decide to pass a federal law explicitly banning abortion. This will not stop women from seeking them since the conditions that lead to abortions will have been exacerbated. So who's going to jail? The women seeking them or the doctors performing them under the table? More people, likely including the women whose situations have gone from bad to worse due to unplanned pregnancy and then choosing to be responsible by not bringing a child into this world to suffer from poverty and related issues and be a drain on the government, those women will be filling up those private prisons. Many of these women already have kids, which means that on top of more kids being born into potentially bad situations and environments, 
more living, breathing kids will be separated from their families due to abortion enforcement. All of this means more kids in the system that need families. But because fewer Americans will be able to afford adoption, and because we will have legally allowed adoption agencies to keep certain families from adopting, more children will end up without families. They will languish in underfunded social services and foster care, and without stable homes, most of these kids will be at risk of sexual trafficking, delinquent behavior, extreme poverty, and early death. Is this what we call pro-life? This month, check out this awesome campaign called Hashtag Two Pods a Day. It aims to introduce podcast listeners to two independent podcasts each and every day for the entire month of July. Podstar Podcast was one of the featured podcasts on the 4th of July, but the campaign continues throughout the month, and I encourage you to check it out to listen to and follow some other great indie podcasts. Follow on Twitter at Two Pods a Day so you can be introduced to cool indie podcasts daily in your Twitter feed. Hashtag Two Pods a Day encourages you to listen more, listen indie. If Roe is overturned, will evangelicals begin to embrace the Bible so many believe is the inerrant word of God? And here's why I say it like that. When injustice happens in the United States of America, whether it's unarmed or legally armed black men and women murdered in the streets by police, or children of parents who are seeking asylum legally in this country being separated from their parents and left in cages to fend for themselves for weeks and months at a time, or they're sent to private organizations to be adopted out and separated from their deported parents forever, or immigrants deported to be murdered in the streets by gangs in their countries of origin, or ill people die because they don't have access to proper health care. When any of that is mentioned, the first thing out of the mouths of too many pro-lifers, particularly pro-life Christians, is, oh, well, what about the millions of unborn babies who are murdered due to abortion? Or, that's unfortunate, but we need to deal with abortion first. So let's say we do deal with the abortion issue in the way these people want us to. It becomes illegal in the entire U.S., even though abortion is not specifically called out in the Bible as sin. Will they then pay attention to their Bibles and address issues such as economic and racial injustice that lead to ruined lives and outright loss of life? Once their pet issue is resolved, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James 1, 22-27 With the way the Bible addresses the widowed and the orphaned, and the stranger, and others who fall under the least of these, it takes incredible mental gymnastics to think 
that saving those we don't see, but ignoring and perpetuating the suffering of those we do see, is morally and biblically correct. And yes, Christianity is about faith, but if we really believe, what we say and what we do is an outgrowth of what we believe. After all, faith without works is dead. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Luke 6, 46. Considering that 81% of evangelical voters voted for Trump, and many still support him, his rhetoric spewing hatred against Latinos and Muslims, his tacit endorsement of white supremacist terrorists, his denigration of women, especially women of color, his policies that are tearing apart families and leading to untold suffering, and they choose to support him despite all of this. No, because of all of this. We live in a country with the highest maternal mortality rate in the Western world, where we consider healthcare a privilege of those who can afford it and not part of everyone's right to life. Children are being put in cages and their parents extorted. Drop your claim for legal asylum and you'll get your kids back. And these people are being talked about by people in high places as criminals, while the real criminals, the white supremacist domestic terrorists, run amok and kill without a word from our nation's leader except both sides. Meanwhile, unarmed American citizens are being shot in the streets by those who swear an oath to serve and protect without any due process and folks are being shuffled into private prisons that are profiting off the convictions of American citizens without the resources to properly defend themselves in court, and non-citizens who have been declared to have no rights this country is bound to respect. And yet, instead of standing up against the injustice happening in these United States, too many of these evangelical pro-lifers are explaining away these injustices by blaming those who are enduring these injustices. They should have taken better care of themselves. Healthcare is not a right. It's the parents' fault for crossing the border. And what if they're lying about being eligible for asylum? And shouldn't we tolerate different opinions instead of being so PC and calling everybody racist? And what about those people getting shot? If they would just comply, they wouldn't be shot to death if they would just comply. And if you don't do anything wrong, ever, if you live a perfect life and never run into any problems, you don't have to worry about getting mixed up in the justice system in the first place. Whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. Proverbs 21, 13. The irony is that the foundation of Christianity itself is in oppression. The ancient Israelites were a people group they experienced several occupations by other world powers at the time. Egypt, the Philistines, the Babylonians and the Syrians, and later the Romans. Jesus himself was a refugee whose family fled to Egypt to escape Herod's mass murder of baby boys. Part of Jesus' ministry was calling out those with a degree of power, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, who are oppressing their own people. And he reached out to others like the Samaritan woman at the well who was looked down upon. He saved a sex worker who was about to be stoned to death. Jesus was taken in by Roman authorities and died a death of a common criminal before rising in three days. Some of the letters within the New Testament were written from prison. 
and most of the apostles and many of the early saints were martyred. Yet somehow, in American evangelicalism, the poor are blamed for their poverty and the oppressed for their own oppression, and compassion is saved for the rich and the privileged. It's like the religious version of the upside down. Well, wait, Jay, that's not fair. I didn't vote for all of that. I voted for Trump because Hillary is terrible. I support Trump because of the economy. I support Trump because of the courts. Oh, no, it's completely fair. And this is why. This isn't a parliamentary system where several parties run on narrow slates of issues. You don't get to just pick based on one or two issues without owning all of it. Because we're going to experience all of it, regardless of what you claim you intended. And here's the thing. If you're more conservative, and you felt you couldn't vote for Hillary, and I get it, there are legit reasons she wasn't an optimal choice. The emails were the least of her problems. There were other options. You could have voted third party. You could have written in anyone else. You could have skipped the part of the ballot that asked for your presidential vote and focused down ballot. If you didn't want to vote for Hillary, okay, fine. But there were other options if you couldn't imagine filling in the little square next to Hillary's name. But you specifically chose the Trump square. You pressed the Trump button. And if you still support him now, you have no excuse. And why are we crediting Trump with the improving economy? The economy was already improving under President Obama. That's how trends work, guys. And starting trade wars with our allies and frenemies alike is going to eventually stall any economic improvement or at least any benefit that would otherwise trickle down to the poor and middle class. And the court. Let me remind you of something. Court appointments are for life. Once they're done one way or the other with revisiting Roe, they'll be able to interpret and essentially shape law of all kinds for a generation or longer. It is incredibly short-sighted and lacking in any kind of perspective to support court appointments based on a single issue. We will all have to live with the effects for decades. There are a lot of people in our society who are being thrown under the bus for the sake of pro-life. And just because they don't look like you, speak like you, or have the same experiences as you, doesn't mean their lives matter any less. A lot of people will be hurt. A lot of people will be victimized. A lot of people will experience grave injustice. A lot of people will die. It's all collateral damage because to too many supporters of the pro-life movement, symbolism is more important than life. Don't just tell me I'm wrong. Prove it. Want to learn more about the U.S. Supreme Court and how we got here? Check out Oops, I Talk Politics, which is another excellent show on the Flying Machine Network. Oops, I Talk Politics is an awesome, entertaining political podcast with Ryan, Daryl, Phil, and Sly. I'm subscribed, and I'll tell you, they're really fun to listen to. Their upcoming episode this Wednesday the 18th will be fire. They're going to be talking about the Supreme Court. They'll get more into Brett Kavanaugh as a justice pick, the history of the courts, and the recent politicizing of the courts, and some light, fun stuff as well. If you like Pot Stirrer Podcasts, you'll really enjoy Oops, I Talk Politics. So check them out. Be sure to listen to them and subscribe. So I did want to take a little bit of time during this episode to talk about the Families Belong Together rally I attended a couple weeks ago. 
I attended the rally June 30th here in Cincinnati at Washington Park and over the Rhine. If you couldn't make it there or to one in your area, hopefully you had an opportunity to see parts of it that I streamed on Instagram and Facebook. The best way I can describe the experience is that it was wonderful seeing people coming together for a common cause. Full disclosure, it's especially tough living in a region that's pretty conservative. Even our Democratic mayor is conservative. And there are a number of people here that are on board with fear of immigrants to the point of caging babies and children. And I have to confess that in my day-to-day life, sometimes I feel like I'm screaming into the void. So seeing a great turnout of like-minded people and being with these like-minded people gave me hope. At the rally, there was a very powerful interfaith invocation from Christian, Muslim, and Jewish clergy. Then there were a number of speakers, including dreamers and undocumented immigrants, giving testimony of their experiences, and it made it more human, more real to so many of us who aren't experiencing it ourselves. It was also really neat to chat with a number of organizations who were there in support of asylum seekers, undocumented immigrants, and other immigrants to this country. Some are local to Cincinnati or the Cincinnati tri-state area. Others are national. These organizations include the Human Rights Campaign, the Platypus Affiliated Society, the Socialist Alternative, Kino Border Initiative, Ticken Farm, Immigrant Dignity Coalition, United Food and Commercial Workers Union, Cincinnati Interfaith Workers Center, and a number of others. My mention of these groups doesn't necessarily equal endorsement, but I want to put it out there for your own information. I'll post links on the show website. Be sure to check them out and find out ways you can get involved because the fight for the children and other immigrants is definitely not over. Thanks so much for listening to Potstirer Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to hit the subscribe button in iTunes or any podcaster you're using so you can get new episodes as soon as they're released. Tell your friends and visit our website at potstirrerpodcast.com. If you would like to do more to support Potstirrer Podcast and the other great podcasts of the Flying Machine Network, go to www.patreon.com slash flyingmachine and donate to our Patreon. Even a dollar a month will go a long way towards allowing us to provide more awesome content. But simply listening to our shows is something we're super grateful for. So go to Flying Machine Network to see a list of all our shows, listen, subscribe, and share. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free. I give you the incredible flying machine.